Take a network break. Strap in and grab a virtual donut as we traverse this week's tech news. We're going to talk about Zoom's big acquisition, new APs from Extreme, and a raft of financial results, among other things. We're sponsored in part today by iTential. iTential is network and cloud automation. iTential software makes it easy for network teams to get insights into your entire infrastructure, immediately detect non-compliant assets for quick remediation, and manage and deploy changes across both CLI and API infrastructure. You can find out more at itential.com slash packetpushers. Stay tuned after the news. We have a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation on how to get visibility into and context for the IoT devices connecting to your network. We talked to Aruba about their edge services platform and how it delivers hyper-awareness of your IoT environment. All right, let's dive into some news. The video conferencing giant Zoom has announced its intention to buy Five9. Five9 offers a cloud-based contact center service. Zoom is making the purchase for $14.7 billion in an all-stock transaction. So there's a few things going on here. Obviously, Zoom is looking at its competitors who have all got contact centers, you know, like the WebExes and the Microsoft Teams who have all bought call center technology to strap on the side of their uh, te- their technology stacks, their, their meeting stacks, and Zoom needs to do something. And of course, Zoom has lots of money. When you've ridden your share price up on the back of, uh, you know, the pandemic boom and everybody chose your technology as the leading one, you've got mm-hmm. a lot of money, but now you have an expectation to make money. And so what you can do is you've got all this cash, so you go and start buying companies to tuck into your business so that you can grow your revenue. So this sort of does a bit, it does hits many different things. Like we always talk about here, you companies making these acquisitions are never doing them for just one reason. So in this case, I think there's two clear reasons. A, Zoom's got the money and it needs to show revenue to justify its high share valuation based on its business model. And then the second part is, and, and sorry, and that acquisition then gives them the growth that now takes them from where they are into the next phase. Mm-hmm. Adding a contact center is a natural acquisition. It's a sideways thing. You just add it on the back of your existing technology. Keep in mind that uh, Zoom already has a Zoom phone service. So it's already doing cloud-based PABX for people and you can go and do whatever you, you you know take phones they've even got a hardware phone that you can put on your desk Drew. i like feels a bit retro feels a bit like buying vinyl records because it's the real experience but okay people but, like that some people like that who am i to judge who am i to judge i mean what's wrong with a smartphone but anyway nah, it, i don't know yeah and zoom was already a partner with 59 for that zoom phone service so they do have an existing relationship i agree it seems like a uh, a nice adjacent purchase and that they can tuck in a contact center business to their video conferencing business. There was a lot of overlap there and with video conferencing being mm-hmm. one way uh, organizations might want to talk to customers. So it makes a lot of sense. It does. And of course, Cisco's WebEx, which did have a differentiator in the sense that they had the contact center tooling around HCX and they've been merging all of that collaboration tools into the WebEx platform. Although probably a little bit slowly, this might give them a bit of an edge to start, you know, a sense of urgency about that and move those products together. So this idea is that it's a customer experience or CX, what we used to call a call center, whatever. And basically it's about having agents take telephone calls and talk to customers and that sort of stuff. That's what it is. So no big deal there. Um, As I said, normal, but significant in the sense that contact centers are still very popular with a lot of companies and people now have a viable alternative to the traditional ones, you know, the Genesis and the and and the WebExes and the Teams of this world, and you could say, actually, I want Zoom because it's different and potentially got something about it that I like. Yeah, I, I know Zoom kind of seems unstoppable at the moment. It's the, the default video conferencing app of choice, but I also wonder if the company is thinking about how to bolster and advance its position with further acquisitions. I'm curious to see if they move into, you know, sort of that asynchronous chat space, a la Slack. Uh, they don't have anything there, and that would also seem like 
an interesting add-on and give them even more competition, uh, put them on more competitive footing against Teams and WebEx, which are coming on strong, particularly Teams, which I, you know, personally, I'm getting more conference calls happening over Teams. So I think Zoom is noticing and wanting to, yeah, has to be aware of what, how the market is changing. I, I think absolutely. I mean, it's obviously aware that it's more than just a personal calls, you know, or small group calls. The obvious one is uh, virtual events. So we already do webinars over it. People do meetings and chats. They've expanded yeah. it to rooms and workspaces, but where's the virtual event? You know, where's the presenter audience type right. stuff? And WebEx uh, recently acquired Cisco and, and the WebEx business unit acquired a company to bring the virtual event, you know, sign up, take money, all that sort of stuff. I think there's a huge market there to bring some sort of virtual event platform to market that works because the current virtual events are clearly not working. I think for most people, it, just about anybody you talk to say the current virtual event platforms aren't, uh, and it's not that they're, it's not, they're not good. It's not that they're bad, but they're trying to copy a physical conference. I think the virtual conference of the future will be something different. And we haven't found what that looks like in the same way. Right. That Zoom exactly. video conferencing doesn't look like the video conferencing of 10 years ago. Doesn't involve ISDN lines and a camera in a dedicated room. <laughs> you remember all that video conferencing from 10 years ago? It was all, <laughs> telepresence telepresence yes <laughs> telepresence was not the what people wanted what they wanted was something that was convenient it was on their phone it was on their computer and i think virtual events there's we still haven't found what it is about the virtual event that'll make it successful and i think they're all looking for it at this point in time but that's where zoom will go next will be my money all right we'll put that in the prediction spreadsheet see what happens uh, let's mm -hmm. move on extreme networks has announced new wi-fi 6 eaps they are shipping to select customers and they say their wi-fi 6 eaps can be ordered now with delivery expected in the fall of 2021 uh, if you're not familiar with the current state of wi-fi 6e is an extension that lets ap's use a new six gigahertz band that recently became available along with the 2.4 and 5 gigahertz band so that extra spectrum means additional capacity wider channels and less interference yeah, and this is exciting. There's a lot of people there who think that Wi-Fi 6E is a thing. I don't believe there to be a lot of pent-up demand for this. But if I was a somebody who was looking at vamping, you know, revamping or overhauling my campus network, and or I was doing an, a stadium, I would want to be using the next generation of technology. Challenge here, of course, is we know that the Wi-Fi 6E chipsets are in limited supply. The silicon chip shortage is affecting this. I've heard from some wireless vendors that they're now out to a two-year lead time on common use uh, wireless chipsets from certain manufacturers and they're just not able to get them and they're now retooling their software to take advantage of different vendors in the wi-fi chipset range which is not something that was historically done and um i don't but you know if you've got wi-fi 5 d or wi-fi 5e are you actually going to race out and go, yippee, the latest Wi-Fi 6E is here? No, I don't think so. So I think this is fine, but it's not world changing. It doesn't, that's, how, and that's what I think. Yeah, I think uh, given the current state we're in, in regard to folks getting back to work in the offices, the, the whole benefit of 6E is that you've got this uh, nice clean uh, spectrum you can use to reduce interference. But if there's fewer people in the office contesting for the airspace you've already got, 6E doesn't seem like a big seller. There may be particular verticals like healthcare or warehousing or manufacturing where this will be, yes, I must have it for the enterprise, particularly if you've already bought into Wi-Fi 6, which is the 802.11.ax, which had a lot of amazing features that made that a significant jump from the previous version. 6E is maybe not such a need, particularly at this point. Yeah. So it's an incremental upgrade. It's going to be great. 
you know, gives you some features. If you're in specific environments or certain verticals like medical or where you want to get access to new features, or if you're about to spend on an upgrade, you might want not to buy last year's technology. You might want to buy the new. But yeah. again, so good, yes, but supply chain's going to be a problem. There's no guarantee that Extreme would be able to deliver on time unless they've got allocated uh, delivery from vendors, and maybe they don't. I got to talk to Extreme about this announcement, and I asked them a couple of times, like, okay, what about supply chain constraints? And they said, you know, we've got a close relationship with Broadcom, and they're going to, quote, manage through this, uh, which is not the same as, yes, we guarantee that <laughs> APs will be available. So take that as you will. Yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, moving on, researchers have discovered that Amazon's Echo Dot smart devices retain user data even after factory resets that are supposed to wipe them clean. The researchers bought secondhand Echo Dots online and found that data can include Wi-Fi credentials, a previous owner's location, uh, passwords, and tokens. Uh, so these are obviously privacy issues for consumers, but Greg, you're also raising this uh, as an issue for potentially the enterprise. I, I think all of these IoT, consumer IoT devices represent a risk to enterprises, uh, over the years, we've seen executives or people bring, you know, their home devices to work because they find them convenient at home. I could imagine there's an executive out there who's got an office and likes being able to ask Amazon things like, you know, when's my next meeting and stuff like that. And that, of mm -hmm. course, is a data risk. But even more so, um, you know, data leakage or, you know, if he's asking questions, he or she is asking about questions of Amazon of, of the Amazon dot that is confidential information. There's a leakage problem there. Uh, and from a corporate angle, even if you have them in the office, whose account are they using? You know, that sort of stuff. But this idea that I could steal someone's Echo Dot and then get access to all of their history, and that's even after they've wiped it, apparently it still retains a lot of the history and, and certain keys. And so Amazon has fairly substantially demonstrated over time that it has a very casual attitude towards user privacy and consumer uh, safety. And so mm -hmm. I think you would want to be considering this and, you know, putting some sort of policy out saying no Amazon products in the corporation sort of thing. Well, good luck telling the CEO they can't plug in their Echo Dot because they want to hear some music while they work. Yeah, uh, but give him a this smart means... phone and a set of earpods and tell him that, you know, get a grip. <laughs> right. Uh, and, any, you know, keep an eye on your VLANs and be aware of what's attaching to your network, I think, mm. is the story here. All right, another story about, uh, so this is happening, uh, I think, over in Europe that uh, Sony Music uh, is suing a, a DNS provider, asking them to take down access to sites that could potentially infringe on Sony's copyrights. Uh, and there's some serious issues here about this. Yeah, this is very interesting. The, uh, the Quad9 project, which is sponsored by a group of big companies, uh, largely IBM, which provides a free and open DNS service for anybody to use as a DNS resolver so that you've got options away from Google. Uh, which has been a, um, really the only choice for a long period of time. And after all, the previous free DNF services were bought up by various IT vendors for their threat intelligence. In other words, what are people looking up and what do we need to know about what's happening in the DNS space? Quad9 right. emerged. And Quad9 was actually slapped with by Sony Music with a lawsuit in Germany uh, to say, take these offline, which is interesting. And because of the way the German lawsuit works, uh, the judge ruled in favor and Quad9 globally, potentially, may be forced to take a specific domain offline that actually points to some content. Now, of course, we generally see the domain name system as a tool, and the idea that you can take the tool and take it offline is sort of a bit of a problem. I mean, is Sony now going to go and take all of the other DNS providers to court and get them blocked as well? 
Um, anyway, the DNS filter CEO has added his words to it to sort of highlight the fact that just how problematic this is um, and to highlight that DNS resolvers should not police the internet for copyright violations. Right. But you as a corporation, of course, you have a DNS revolver. You probably may run one on site. Are you now legally culpable for this sort of stuff as well? Yeah, I read an article about this uh, published by the EFF here in the US, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and that's the argument they're making essentially that if a DNS provider can be told to take down access to a site that's not uh, infringing on copyright, it's just linking to other sites that may infringe on copyright, mm -hmm. uh, then that means Sony could make the case that anybody else who can has that ability to do this, like a firewall vendor, uh, a DNS resolver in your corporation, mm -hmm. et cetera, is also legally obligated to do that, which puts a huge burden on folks that they shouldn't necessarily have. And it doesn't scale. How, how If you operate a DNS server, how do you know that that domain is actually being looked up on your DNS server? Right. Like you can't know. And how do you get information to know which DNS domains are? You know, is Sony going to provide you with a list, you know, or are they just going to sue you after the fact? You can't. Anyway, it's one of these interesting questions. I mean, logically, you end up in a situation where if you followed the same logic here, you'd be able to sue car makers for car accidents because they made the cars. Or right. you'd be able to sue gun manufacturers because, for, you know, because the gun shot, the gun was used to shoot, shoot someone. And that's the same logic, right? <laughs> Right. I think it's a dangerous precedent that this German court has set. Uh, yes. So, but we'll see yeah. how it plays out. I just thought I'd raise it with you to say there's all these weird issues that affect the way you might want to, you know, and I wouldn't want to see a, a centralized DNS functionality so that there's only like a handful of companies in the world doing DNS so that companies like Sony can police what's allowed and not. That's what we've got in uh, YouTube already. There, you know, YouTube is already to some extent a cultural police force because the big companies can go over there and tell what YouTube were to take off, and it has a substantial effect, substantial chilling effect. Well, the thing is, there's already rules in place for sites that are or videos or whatever they're infringing on copyright, where you can issue a takedown request, and that should be, you know, mm. that's legal. That's that that process is already in place. But looking for secondary groups to be uh, copyright police is, is a step too far, I feel like. I know somewhere in there there's an executive going, who are we going to sue? There's got to be someone we can sue. <laughs> exactly. There's got to be someone. We've got to do something. And it's not going to be my fault that we didn't do nothing. I told the boss we're going to do something. So get out there and sue somebody. I don't care who you sue. You just go and sue them, right? <laughs> sue everybody. Yeah. All right, our next story is the uh, new availability or recent availability for uh, SMBs to get Cisco gear on Amazon. Cut out the middleman. It's one of the topics I've raised on various podcasts is why can't I just go and buy my technology equipment from Amazon? Why do I have to go to a reseller and put up with all of the silliness that goes on? If I am if I know what I want to buy and I'm making my own decisions about what I... It's not like you get a refund from a reseller or from a vendor anyway, so you, what's the difference? And so the idea that Cisco and others, like this is just the one I'm calling out here because when I started looking for it, I realized that a number of other vendors are now selling a lot of their SMB equipment on Amazon. So if you actually, I would like to see the ability to buy all of my IT products from online so that I don't have to deal with all of this silliness about getting someone in and talking to them and quotations and haggling for a discount and wasting months of my life pointlessly when all I want is a product at a fair price. So a step in the right direction, perhaps, maybe? Perhaps. I mean, wasn't that always Dell's business model, just eliminate the middleman and let folks go order what they want online? Well, it was until they, you know, started to have resellers. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> Another warning for resellers that you have to do more than just be the middleman. You've got to find some way to add value or services on top. Well, and 
it's not even. They just complicate everything because then the vendor has to do this and they have to and the pricing and then there has to be discounts because there has to be this level of reseller and that level of reseller and it just all goes. It's all unnecessary. You want to remove some friction from the buying process. Yeah, exactly. All I want is my gear. Give it to me. Get out of the way. <laughs> I will have links if you want to go see what uh, you can get uh, from Amazon uh, via Cisco. All right, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, iTential. Today's network spans physical, virtual, and multi-cloud infrastructure. That complexity can make it hard to automate reliably. iTential's automation platform makes complicated networks more manageable. With iTential, you get insight into your entire infrastructure. You can immediately detect non-compliant assets for quick remediation and manage and deploy changes across both your CLI and API infrastructure. The iTential platform gives you the trust and confidence you need for automation. For example, they've got a configuration manager that integrates configuration validation right into the automation process. So you get operational consistency across your physical and cloud networks. They've also got a low code automation studio for easy on-ramp to network automation. Got drag and drop capabilities and an open library of pre-built automation workflows and integrations to any IT system. Itential delivers end-to-end -end automation across all your networks. So know your network, automate your network. You can find out more at itential.com slash packet pushers. That's itential.com slash packet pushers. See, that's a product that cuts out the middleman. Because you end up with a way, <laughs> if you if you do start writing your own scripts, you end up with dozens of scripts that do dozens of different things. And then you go like, well, I want to run this script, and then I want to run this script, and then I want to run this script. And that's where this tool comes in. I think we're also doing a heavy networking sponsor with them. Uh, so take a look for that if you want to get more details too. Mm. All right, Greg, you raised an issue about why Apple, Google, Facebook, why their financial results might actually matter to IT infrastructure. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about financial results. We haven't done this for a while because it hasn't been much to say. But this week, Apple, Google, and Facebook all delivered their financial results. And they didn't just make money. And they didn't just print money. They took absolute truckloads of it and then put it on, you know, delivered it to their front foyer and then proceeded to set it on fire. You know, it was like just buckets and buckets of money. And the thing that struck me, like, for example, Apple, Apple didn't just exceed investor and analyst expectations. It reported 36% year-on-year revenue growth. So it increased by its size, its sales, by one-third from this time wow. last year. Mm -hmm. and 100% year-on-year earnings per share growth. Just think about that. That is just such an – like Apple's already one of the largest, if not the largest company in the world, you know, trillion-dollar valuations, blah, blah, blah. But this, when this happens, there's a halo effect where shareholders, especially retail shareholders, start to expect that other tech companies or companies in the same group as, as this, that they also will do this. And in – the sort of people who are listening to Network Break, of course, are all into IT infrastructure. And IT infrastructure companies are not able to produce explosive growth like that. They're not going to get 30% growth in a quarter. They're not going to get 100% year-on-year earnings per share growth because right. it's just not what, you know, customers don't go out and suddenly buy 30% more of their product right. one year to the next, right? It's It's not... Um, well, the, the market is smaller than a consumer market, and I, I'm guessing Apple's uh, results probably are due to all of the, you know, laptop and tablet sales that happened over the past year because of the pandemic. So it may be a little bit of juice. Uh, largely due to its services. So it's cloud hosting, it's software services, it's hmm. iCloud and Apple TV and, and those types of things. Not so much the hmm. hardware stuff. It's still... Interesting. And in fact, Apple's biggest business is in Apple TV, Air, AirPods, uh, speakers, and those types of things. That other category is mm -hmm. already bigger than um, 
Macs and iPads, obviously not smartphones, <laughs> but, but Apple's <laughs> other category where you have watches and AirPods and speakers and stuff is huge, far bigger than Mac computers already. So there's all sorts of weird things in there and are not really relevant to this particular discussion. And so, you know, for example, if you consider what Apple did and if you start to try and say, you know, Cisco recorded average quarterly revenue of $12.8 in the third quarter of financial year 2021, well, that's up substantially. Normally, it's just under $12 billion. So they've got an extra $800 million in sales, which is 6.8% year-over-year growth. But that's an outstanding quarter in the pandemic when everybody was doubling down on technology sales and mm-hmm. they could only manage 6.8% compared to Apple's 36%, right? So right, right. not exactly the same thing. So I do wonder if this leads to pressure on vendors to raise prices. And in this show, we've already highlighted that most of the technology vendors have raised their prices by 30% over the last three years, literally just charged more. And that's happened in a couple of different ways. In some cases, they've just reset their pricing for products or they've re- uh, brought new products to market at substantially more expensive pricing, all price uh, increases have been hidden inside of subscription fees where customers may not be doing a full uh, ROI analysis of the products. And they're saying this on shareholder calls uh, that, you know, we expect price, you know, we will have more profitability, we will increase revenue because we raised our prices. And that happened this week. I'm not going to say who. You can go and read those results yourselves. And it's just literally that's what they're doing. They're under pressure to look like Apple. You can expect your vendors to charge you more and give you less, which is the other side of that equation. And be aware of that. You as a customer need to caveat into it. Because if you pay more for something and get less value, you're actually failing your employer. Like you're making your tech IT vendor a success is actually you failing your employer. So you need to haggle hard, find discounts, and find ways to, to buy for the lowest possible price. Yeah, that's interesting because... Any shareholder obviously wants their value to increase. Retail investors who may be particularly those new to the market may not understand that Cisco is a different animal from Apple and wondering why uh, they aren't seeing the same kind of results. I would expect institutional uh, investors to be a little bit more savvy, but then again, we also know they will often prioritize short-term gains over long-term viability. So yeah, it is an interesting take on how uh, that kind of pressure from consumer companies may affect IT infrastructure companies. I think it will. And we're already seeing them, you know, look to it. Uh, there's been a price drop over the last decade. And I think they've had enough of that. And they're going to say, if you're not willing to pay these new high prices and give us extra profit margin, then we don't want you as a customer. And that has historic, been previously limited to companies like IBM and Cisco. And now we're seeing that go more broadly across all of the IT infrastructure players. And I think it's driven by shareholder expectations. So speaking of shareholder expectations, F5, uh, let's start with them. They had third quarter revenues of $652 million, which is up 12% year over year, net income of the quarter for $90 million. That's a lot of stuff, Drew. That's a big. That's a, a, that's a pretty good quarter. Twelve percent is very good for F five. Yes, uh, they said software growth is in fact the key driver of its results. Which you know we've talked about F five having to transition from mm. being uh, a seller of hardware appliances to software, and it seems like maybe that's working. The one thing I took away is that in the Q two and Q three, they retired five hundred million worth of shares. So not only did they increase sales, they actually managed to. Uh, spend $500 million worth of profits and cash flow gains off Taking a shares off the market. revenue stream of $650 million. Mm-hmm. So they literally took $1.2 billion in two quarters, $1.3 billion, and managed to buy $500 million worth of shares. And that's the currently popular way to give 
shareholders a dividend is to take shares off the pit, off the market, buy them back, so that the share price inflates, so that uh, shareholders get a capital gain, not a, a dividend payer. And that's what they're doing here. So 500 million worth of shares on a quarterly revenue of 650 million is just, they're just raking in the money at this particular point. So I mentioned that the company did cite software growth as a key driver of its results, though I also noticed in the press release, the CEO uh, says, quote, customers, traditional applications are generating more revenue and more engagement than ever before, which I thought was curious until I thought about it. I'm translating that as, hey, lots of our customers have legacy apps and we're going to keep squeezing them for as long as we can. So keep an eye out for that. (laughs) Yeah, watch out for that one. Yeah, of course they are. Yeah. <laughs> Next up is Fortinet. They've announced second quarter results uh, and they are pretty good. They had revenues of 801 million for the quarter, up 30% year over year, and net income of 137.5 million, also up year over year. Yeah. So revenue is up 30%. Yeah. Which is jaw dropping. Product revenue is up 41%. Service revenue up 24%. Billings up 35% year over year. So that's obviously a tremendous uh, success story for Fortinet. Keep in mind that they have recently started buying companies to add to their portfolio. In the past, Fortinet developed almost everything in house. So they may well be seeing a boost from this. But again, what I wanted to flag here is that. The uh, this is part of a stream, and we'll keep on talking about some other vendors and some ones that we don't not normally cover. Is just how successful they've been over the pandemic. And the next one's A10 Networks. Yeah, so they make application delivery controllers and load balancing. They reported their Q2 earnings. They had revenues of fifty nine point two million, up twelve percent, and net income of six point six million, which nearly doubled their net income for the last quarter. So smaller results in Fortinet, but also everything's pointing up. Yeah. Uh, and A10 has always been a very modest company, but they work in the same space as F5. They make a load balancer, an application delivery controller, whatever you want to call it, uh, and all that type of stuff. And they've got a unique architecture, which I've always been a bit of a fan of. But obviously, at 60 million revenue per quarter, not exactly in the same category as the other companies. We're doing <laughs> and 10 it's times smaller. <laughs> yeah. So I always sort of watch the A10 numbers, them and Radware as the other one. And Radware had an amazing quarter as well. Uh, to sort of get an idea, how deep does this turnaround go? And this sort of suggests to you that all the tech companies have in the last, you know, in the last quarter have been popping the doors off the cars as they've been taking money, raking money in hand over fist. So, and I think the story that we're coming to here is if any of them plead poor, just laugh them, laugh at them until they get out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, That's right. So poor. <laughs> get out. <laughs> Uh, moving on, Juniper Networks, they're reporting their results. It's Q2 of 2021 for the company. They had revenues of $1.17 billion, up 8% year-over-year, and net income of $62 million, up 1% year-over-year. So Juniper's still in a bit of a turnaround, obviously. The market's changing for them. They were selling a lot of technology to cloud providers, and that slowed down. They were selling a lot of assets to service providers, and that market slowed down and is in a in a transition point. And so they pivoted back to the enterprise and they're going big on the fact that Mist, you know, the Mist AI ops story is selling really well with customers and they were saying how fantastic it is. And they quoted a bunch of numbers about just how successful they've been in selling that to enterprises. But what was missing in the discussion where Rami Rahim was talking to analysts was not much mention of one to eight technology acquisition in the SD-WAN. That feels like a gap in the market when there's so much potential there. Um, but they did also say how big the Southwest sales as a growth margin has been for them. So I feel like um, Juniper is still making a turnaround on the SD-WAN. And the, the last one was the supply chain problems. 
Yeah, so last uh, quarter, they posted a net loss of 31 million. Uh, so having a net income of 62 million this quarter is a nice uh, change quarter over quarter. I agree, though, with SD-WAN. I feel like Juniper has kind of missed the boat, uh, missing a very hot market with still a lot of growth potential. I don't mm. know that 128 technology is going to bring them in line with their competitors in terms of winning uh, SD-WAN market share or even capturing new. Mm. Um, so, but we'll, yeah, maybe I'm wrong. We'll have to see what happens. They obviously found something really interesting yeah. in that company. 128 so. Technology had one of the best SD-WAN technologies. They really had did it differently. They weren't just reinventing the wheel, you know, reinventing the VPN, IPSEC VPN type of thing. They actually did something quite intelligent and smart um, to make that work. And it's got a great potential. It has the potential to be another mist if they can start marketing that. Maybe they're still transitioning it. Uh, the share price did actually fall 4 to 6%, but that was on the back of the fact that analysts believe that Juniper's got supply chain problems, like securing chipsets from its suppliers, most likely Broadcom, as well as its own custom chipsets that it gets manufactured, may affect it in the future. It's uh, and I read through the questions from the analysts. I don't think it is. I think Juniper's just being a little bit too honest about the problems or the potential for problems. <laughs> Um, and then the analysts have kind of run with it and turned it into a herd trend and then it's become fashion, if you know what I'm saying. So we'll see. Right. Mm. All right, we'll wrap up with Extreme Networks. They reported their Q4 and full fiscal year financial results for the quarter. Company revenues were $278 million, up 29% year over year, and a net income of $10 million for the full year. The company posted just over $1 billion in revenue, up 6% year over year. And back when Extreme was on its acquisition spree, becoming a billion-dollar company was one of its stated goals. So I guess they have achieved that milestone. Yeah, you know, when the results come in just over $1 billion, you always figure someone's got a bonus. Right, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> if I can get one billion in a quarter, I get a, I get an, uh, an extra bonus. You know, I get a, you know, that extra point or something like that. Or, you, or someone's got bragging rights at the bar. Or, and don't underestimate this: the CEO's got a bet with another CEO that he can do a billion dollar quarter or something like that at the golf club. And yes, that actually happens. But th th I think the story here is we talked about how companies like Extreme how deep this uh, good news has been for like how much sales they've been able to get during the pandemic. And Extreme is one of these companies that sort of wobbles around a little bit. It has good quarters and bad quarters. It falls from a loss or profit. And mm. for them to get an extra 30% revenue year over year sort of highlights the fact that the shift to software, that's one of the things we didn't flag in the previous ones. This shift to software means they don't actually have to buy a product and put it in a warehouse and ship it to a customer. They just start selling you more software and you can make money without actually incurring a great deal of extra cost. And that is true. But if you look at their the financial results they posted in their press release, they are still, I think, uh, their income or their revenue uh, is still 3x on product versus software. So they haven't mm -hmm. quite made that switch that we see other, the other uh, infrastructure vendors doing. They're still very tied to, pro uh, to Like Extreme's using the same chipsets as everybody else, but nobody's beating them over their head with supply chain problems. This is what I mean about why is Juniper suffering, but Extreme's not. It's inconsistent to me. Mm. Yeah, I'm not sure. Well, we'll see uh, if their Wi-Fi 6 EAPs get bitten by supply chain. That's We'll find out in the fall. Mm. All right, our last story for the day, Cloudflare announced that for scheduled jobs, customers can choose to run workloads at locations powered entirely by renewable energy. This is an option that Cloudflare is calling Green Compute. It's currently a beta program available to customers. Yeah, I thought this would be the, a good story to wrap up on, just as a different way of thinking about things. Obviously, Cloudflare lets you run apps, you write them in JavaScript, or you run your HTML at the edge of the network on their servers. And what they're allowing developers to be able to say is, we want you to run this as green compute. And then Cloudflare will schedule the job to run 
on compute infrastructure, which is using renewable energy, making it green. And I, I actually think this is kind of hopeful. I have plenty of concerns. You know, will the take up actually happen? Does it make sense to do that sort of thing? But I actually think this is a novel idea and it, I see it more as a testing the market idea right. than a right. realistic thing. Well, Cloudflare did put out a raft of announcements this week around uh, their efforts to become a more energy efficient and, in fact, a zero net emissions company. That's one of their goals. Uh, so this, I think I agree, it's a toe in the water to see how much demand is there from customers, whether they need to keep pushing this or not. Uh, the other thing is, you know, a, a lot of these data centers are not actually being run by solar power or wind power. They're just going onto the market and buying renewable energy credits from other places. Mm -hmm. And that's a good thing because it does provide funding to an industry that needs to continue to grow. I still worry, though, that, you know, it can it's a little bit of greenwashing in that if your data center is still running uh, gas or coal fired from gas or coal fired power, that carbon is still going to the atmosphere, even though mm -hmm. you're buying these renewable energy credits. So there's a little bit of give and take here. Yeah, it's it's not the end point where we want to be. And this is why we see so many data centers actually running their own power generation today. So some of them mm -hmm. run on gas-fired power stations. Some of them have battery packs. Some of them have a range of different, you know, like solar going attached to the site, to the data centers in some places. And that's because they want to have some green and they also want to trial these technologies. Anyway, very complicated. But in this case, it's a it's a principle of building some infrastructure and green data centers and then scheduling work. So the trick here, of course, is execution. And it's also do developers care? Mostly what we hear right. about is developers don't care about where their app runs or what it runs on. All they want is what they want. They want to be tele, you know, they want to be coddled. They want somebody to do it for them. This doesn't feel like that. Like I'm sure that Cloudflare has done a pretty good job of trying to keep this easy to use and just put a tick in here to make it happen. But I also think I, I'm not sure that developers will actually care enough to be bothered. That would be unfortunate because I do assume that Cloudflare is using this as a market signal, but uh, also it's better than nothing. And I'm really encouraged by it. And I hope other you know cloud yeah. providers follow suit and maybe even compete with each other on the greening of their infrastructure. Uh, let's get our lefty flag out. <laughs> Wave it around for our Wave it around. There you go. Right. There it is for the week. <laughs> All right. We care. Not That's sure what right. we care about, but we care. <laughs> We don't want you to die in a wildfire or a flood. That's what it's all about. <laughs> right. So that wraps up the news portion of the show. Check out our IoT conversation with Ruben Networks. That's coming right up. On today's Tech Beist podcast, we're talking IoT. More specifically, we're talking about how to get visibility into and context for all the devices that aren't smartphones or laptops, but are connecting wirelessly to your network. Our sponsor is Aruba, an HPE company, and we're going to explore Aruba's Edge Services Platform, or ESP, to find out how it delivers hyper-awareness of your IoT environment. Our guest is Michael Tenafos. He is VP of IoT and Strategic Partnerships. But Michael, welcome to the podcast. So IoT is getting a lot more attention due to operational and security issues, but you know the whole concept of connecting sensors and compute, merging them together, has, you know at least in the tech space, kind of a long history. That's a very long history. Uh, in fact, it... it in many ways, machine control dates back to the dawn of electricity itself when motors and switches and pumps were all connected. The first programmable logic controllers came out in the 1950s, and those merged control and computing resources. And since then, we've had a pretty major focus on how we uh, reliably connect and miniaturize and lower the cost of connecting machines to each other and to applications. But now we're actually butting against the limits of what connectivity by itself will bring us. Yeah. And so when we're talking about IoT in the enterprise case, it's not just consumer gadgets hopping onto a wireless network. These devices can actually help you meet business challenges and solve problems, right? Absolutely. 
these solutions can help you optimize inventory, improve infection control and healthcare applications, avoid collisions between people and machines in uh, surface and subsurface mining applications, even automate things like hoteling spaces and back to work initiatives. And, and solving these challenges requires something more than connectivity. It actually requires situational awareness. That's awareness of what's going on around us now and the impact of changes to that in the future. And it's really the intersection of the internet of things and network connected uh, contextual information that will make that possible. That's something we call- So there's a, there's a couple of things there I think I'd like to sort of expand on before we get further, if I may, Michael. Sure. One is that a lot of IoT is not consumer IoT, it's industrial IoT or it's uh, business IoT. That is, there are machines in a factory or a plant or a sewage plant or a water plant or whatever it is, uh, is one sort of area. And that's kind of the traditional legacy uh, monitoring sensors type stuff. But there's a whole new market in what I think of as corporate, which is buildings, traffic flows, and that sort of stuff. There's a whole, that's not just you know, smart lights in the home. It's a vastly huge market with large sums of money attached to it. And the industrial one sort of exists and is changing, but the other one's a new market. Is that reasonable assumptions on my part? Not really. In fact, the commercial and the industrial predate the consumer by a, a very long way. Uh, they were the first implement. That's why we have electricity. That's how we get mm. gasoline for our cars and natural gas for our homes. It's because the application of IoT, and by the way, what's new is the term IoT, but the actual systems, the control infrastructure has been around for decades and decades, running all of the infrastructure that makes life modern and comfortable and convenient. Hmm. But I guess I would say what I think Greg was hinting at is things like building controls, HVAC systems, or even medical devices in a hospital that would normally be someone else's responsibility because now they can get you know, an Ethernet network connection over the YLAN now becomes IT's responsibility. So what has changed is that all of those different systems that you mentioned used to operate in isolation. But to solve a problem like infection control, you need to be able to pull information out of the building automation air handling system. You need to know where people are moving. You need to understand where patients are located. And that requires cross-communication uh, between systems that used to be siloed. So that ethernet connection that you mentioned before is actually allowing the exchange of data that used to be isolated. And that has some benefits and it has some downsides. The benefit is I can now share this information with lots of different applications that can use exactly the same, for example, location data to say, this is where a patient is located. It can also identify where assets are. And if there's a fire, which parts of the building are occupied. The downside of it is that I've now exposed a much broader range of devices to a cyber attack than was the case when they were all isolated before. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so I, I need to prepare for the new cybersecurity era that comes with this kind of uh, cross-sharing of data that I didn't have before. I think that's normal because IoT is so much more in terms of the attack surface. A network device, like a, the edge of the network or the devices connected to the network used to be computers and printers and fax machines. And now it's smartphones that aren't even connected to a campus. They're connected outside of an office now. And that whole surface, and that requires a different approach to networking than we've ever done before, which we'll talk about in a minute. But I wanted to flag that 
separation between where we were historically and where we're going to and trying to just pull that out a little bit. And if I could double click on that point, because it's, it's very important for the audience. IoT devices were designed to perform a certain task very reliably, maybe for 100 yeah. years with no service, but they weren't designed for cybersecurity. That mm -hmm. expertise sits in IT, not in the groups that design these machines. And that's why IoT itself is fundamentally untrustworthy. Mm. And so as you, as you start adding IoT devices into your infrastructure, you need to protect the network from the devices. You need to protect the devices from other devices, and you need to protect the mm. applications that consume them as well. This comes back to the point where a lot of, I was reading something from the NCSC, which is the uh, NSA of the UK when it comes to outward facing advice to companies. And they were talking about don't trust the network is one of their top 10 points. You can't trust the network to be trustworthy. So you have to find ways to make the network untrustworthy, but still to make it trust. And that's the fundamentals of a zero trust architecture. And in this you know, security context, I, I mentioned it in my introduction. You also mentioned it, this notion of hyper awareness. You, you need to know what's on your network, what it is and what it's supposed to be doing and also what it shouldn't be doing, right? Absolutely. So the, the fundamental tenet of hyper awareness is that you're taking data from IoT devices, and you're mashing it up with contextual information like identity, location, applications in use, and security posture, and allowing that the meta resulting metadata to be shared among many different applications. But with that comes the responsibility to provide the zero trust framework to protect everything from these IoT devices. And that might include things like Micro, micro segmentation, where you're setting up a dynamically segmented tunnel through which all the IoT data flows on your corporate network, but it has no opportunity to reach beyond that tunnel to touch any of the applications or the other corporate data that's traversing it. So th is this micro segmentation? And if it's not micro segmentation, which is the very common term, how is it different or how does it vary? What's different in, in the way that Aruba structures these systems is that the way in which the system is set up is based on the identity and the role-based access assigned to specific devices. So if I take an IP camera and mm. plug it into the network, the network will automatically identify it as a specific type of camera and set up the secure tunnel automatically to the video analytics application that's consuming it, as opposed to leaving that as a, as a manual and potentially error-prone task for a skilled installer. In, in, by doing it automatically, it means you can do this with unskilled labor and the network will protect itself during ads, moves and changes when a cable might be plugged into a different port than it was before. The system will correct for that. So can you talk about how that actually happens then? I assume this is where we tie into Aruba's edge services platform, because it sounds like, you know, you need some you need basic network components, but you also need some kind of intelligence that's actually able to identify and then apply the appropriate rules. Absolutely. So the, the role of the edge services platform really comes to three fundamental building blocks. One is to provide a unified infrastructure. And uh, this supports the use of wired and wireless IoT devices, high speed devices, legacy devices that have been installed for years and have no security. Um, so that plugs into the unified infrastructure and ESP. Then underpinning that is a zero trust and a SASE framework in which the system ESP protects machines and users 
from edge to server to cloud over wired wireless SD-WAN connections. And it interfaces with more than 150 leading security vendors to provide that complete east-west, north-south protection. And then finally, at the bottom of the foundation is our AI-powered software that can automatically identify degrading communication, application performance before it becomes impactful, basically takes to root cause any issues that arise using machine learning in order to do that. And I think the, the part here is this, moving away from the fixed idea of I put something in a VLAN statically, that port or that wireless MAC address, and to something much more dynamic, the idea that there is software that's uh, dynamically identifying the edge and then dynamically identifying where which microsegment or which overlay that device belongs to. And then it manages the overlay to make sure that the the devices are isolated according to the security policy that you create. That's a major transition overall in, in campus networking and branch networking. It's a major transition. And to build on what you said, it also flattens the network. Because if you think about it, with the addition of literally billions of IoT devices coming onto networks around, around the world, that creates VLAN explosion in a traditional model, <laughs> uh, which is basically impossible to manage uh, over, over large scale. Whereas mm. moving to the um, ESP model, the edge services platform from Aruba, that is automated for you and flattened. And by using identity, an identity that's shared across multiple systems, we're able to onboard the devices, we're able to micro-segment them, we're able to share the policy information with other security platforms, and we're able to share that information with the machine learning systems to optimize the performance of the system. So when you're talking, I mean, when I think of Aruba, you know, most people probably think of APs, wireless. But uh, if you're also working with the wired network to set up VLANs, does that mean there are, you've also got wired components as well? Or, or the other question is, I guess, what are all the elements of Aruba that I need if I'm going to build out this edge service platform? So Aruba is much broader than wireless infrastructure. We're also one of the world's largest provider of switching infrastructure. We have a leading SD-WAN solution. Uh, we have location-based services. We have cloud and on-premise network management solutions as well. And so, uh, and those are all connected into our security infrastructure based around our ClearPass policy management platform. So in order to build this out, typically the ideal scenario is if, you're, if you've got wireless IoT devices, you'll use our access points, which are loaded with IoT radios in addition to Wi-Fi. If you have wired infrastructure, which almost everybody does, then you'd use our switches in that infrastructure and use ClearPass to manage the policies and integrate with the different security solutions. From a management point of view, you have lots of choices. You can do it on-prem, you can do a hybrid model, or you can use our Aruba a central cloud-based solution. So you mentioned uh, machine learning AI a little bit earlier, and that I know among our audience always, you know, sort of raises a flag of, okay, here comes the machine learning washing. What is Aruba doing to actually build out uh, a machine learning capability that's actually going to deliver as opposed to just being a marketing term? You know, that's a, that's a really good point because it is bandied about qu quite a lot these days. So we call our solution AI ops. And what it does is it applies machine learning to baseline application performance 
and can differentiate between out of normal parameters, for example, versus a drifting performance that's within normal behavior. And that avoids distracting IT personnel and prevents from chasing red herrings uh, all around the site. Using intuitive, simple user interfaces, we offload a lot of work from the operator. So basically you can think of the role of our AI operations as augmenting the operator, giving them more information in a simpler to understand uh, format, but also making recommendations on things like how do you optimize the network for better performance? Looking at a, a huge campus environment, for example, it's almost impossible for an operator to say, oh, well, if I had better coverage, for example, of Wi-Fi in these areas, I would get higher throughput. But the network mm -hmm. can do that itself using machine learning. So it's applying machine learning not for hype, but for the simplicity of operation, for the improvement of performance, and frankly, to ensure a better overall user experience by both machines and by applications. Hmm. And of course, to be able to make that work, the old days of static meant that visibility tooling or monitoring tooling was a little optional in a way. You could sort of get by without it and do some manual stuff, but you also have to have visibility now. If this is dynamic and you don't know where things are and you don't have that hands-on feel, you need visibility tooling to make the go with it. So critical issues are displayed, lower priority abnormalities are, are pushed down. So you don't, you don't give uh, the operator an alarm storm when there are multiple out of normal conditions. Mm -hmm. What you do is give them the most important, valuable information up front. And yeah. bundle the alerts into single incident uh, to avoid alert fatigue. And that's really important for keeping the system running and, and not... Uh, wearing out the operators, especially mm. in large deployments. And then being able to see where the traffic is flowing because you're not going to be able to trace it by logging into this device, this device, this device. You need, an, you need a tool that unifies all that together. Exactly. And that's what machine learning was designed for, uh, yeah. to handle scenarios like this that are way beyond the capabilities of, of a person to understand in real time. To be superhuman. That's not hero <laughs> superhuman. That's just to be better as human at a specific task is how I see it. Exactly. It's a little weird way to take it, but it's a way I explain it often enough. Well, we've come to the end of our conversation. Uh, Michael, if folks want to find out more about uh, Edge Services Platform, where should they go? Best place is to point your browser to www.arubanetworks.com. You'll find all the information on ESP and the other subjects we discussed there. Fantastic. That's arubanetworks.com. Uh, thank you, Michael, for joining us. And thanks to Aruba for being a sponsor. And of course, thank you for being a listener. You can find this and many more fine, free technical podcasts along with our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. Follow us on Twitter at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn and rate us on Apple Podcasts if you would. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.